In theater, there is a part of the rehearsal process called tech. This is where you watch your show you've worked so hard on for the past few months fall apart when all of your technical elements such as lighting, sound, and other effects are added to the scenes. In a normal production, once the show falls apart, you are able to pretty quickly put it back together and make it better than it was before. That was not the case for Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. This show was already being held together by a thread, and once it fell apart, there was no putting this monster back together. It didn't help that Julie Taymor was adamant about changing nothing in the show. Her insecurity and stubbornness led to her co-writer having to sneak around and gather forces to try and help save the show. But how do you save a sinking ship when the captain has burned all the lifeboats and is about to ram the ship straight into jagged rocks? Mutiny! Today, I will be completing the story of how Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark became the most controversial musical in Broadway history. Welcome to Strange Ride, where I tell the smartest man I know the weirdest things I know. My name is Savannah Barrett, and I will be your guide today, but you're not the only ones going on this ride. I have a returning guest here, Will Alderson. Hello. And then, of course, we have the smartest man I know, Rob C. Thompson of Occult Confessions fame. You're, you're crashing my boat against the rocks. Ah, uh, why have you burned the lifeboat, Savannah? <laughs> oh, man, because uh, I just decided I didn't need them anymore, you know? Yeah, balls to the walls, I hear that. <laughs> Ovaries, Ovaries yeah. to the walls. Yeah, uh, the, yeah there is, um, I just, I just think it's hilarious that, and we're going to get into it in this episode, but basically Julie Taymor refused to do anything to fix this show, so Glenn Berger, like, made a coup against her and gets her kicked out of the show spoiler alert but mm, yes oh yeah. we'll get plan, into all of that plan x. And, yes plan x and bono and edge play a very big role in it so mm. <laughs> it'll be very interesting it was called plan x it was mm -hmm. we're gonna get into it, it there was a, a lot name? of different names yeah there were a couple <laughs> different names actually oh you i don't can't wait for you to hear this i don't i don't know that i have pl i don't go around having plan i'm not like a, a batman villain like what well, that's your first mistake, Rob. I mean, you could plan a lot of coups. I, I feel like Rob, you're, you're the kind of you're, you're the like planner of the coup. I feel like. Okay, I hear that. My talents are being wasted on not planning coups. So I'll get into that. Alrighty, then. Let's get into the pledge. I solemnly commit, commit myself, myself to keep my hands, arms, arms feet, feet, and legs inside the vehicle, vehicle at all times while on this, on this strange, strange ride. ride. Please remain seated. Your strange ride will resume immediately. So, as Glenn Berger is enjoying Chinese food with his family on one of his very short allotted breaks, he opens a fortune cookie that says, Clear writing arises from clear thinking, which felt very pertinent to the situation he was in. Everyone was feeling the morale dropping at an alarmingly fast rate, and Berger was no exception. But what really got to him was one night during a preview, he went to the restroom where he passed a young boy leaving the restroom with his mom, and the boy looked miserable. A burger thought this little boy was here to see a superhero in front of him, and instead of being full of joy, he looked like he wanted to leave. And like It sort of clicked to him, who are we making this musical for? He racked his brain all night that night and decided that what was needed to save this musical was to cut Deeply Furious, one of Arachne's songs that Timor had specifically asked Bono and Edge for. Deeply Furious became known online as the shoe song because Arachne was furious with Peter Parker because he didn't want to be with her and he wanted to be with Mary Jane instead. So the song begins with the line, what does she have that I don't have? Is it this? Is it that? Shoes? And then she's like, I don't have shoes. I need to get some shoes. And then the dancers in spider legs appear and do sexy dances while putting shoes on Arachne, spreading their many legs wide open for the audience. Berger was right. The song needed to go. And it's reprise that it also had. I just can't even. It was so weird. The number for it was so weird. And it feels weird that she's like Julie Taymor sees Arachne as this super feminist character, but she throws a temper tantrum because... Peter Parker doesn't want to sleep with her. That I don't know. That that doesn't feel very feminist to me. I've never also, seen that in the comics. So <laughs> no, the shoes are also like it, 
it's sort of like a trope of, of femininity, right? Yes. That women are obsessed with shoes. Exactly. My wife does have more shoes than me, but the foot fetish thing uh, is I, where? Where is? Why is that everywhere? Is Tarantino involved in this somehow? <laughs> I also don't like think spider so. feet too. Like I, yes. I don't go around thinking that like you know who thinks spider feet are sexy. Yeah, that's an odd one. Yeah. yeah. It, and and it had a reprise. And and then after that she still had another song that I can't remember the name of that was uh still about why Peter won't sleep with her and that she's pissed off about it. So it's just crazy. Ugh. It could be a whole musical just about <laughs> this arachne trying to be like, it, Why won't he sleep with me? It basically was though. That's basically all of Act Two. So anyway, the I next can see day why that boy is sad. Yes. Yeah, right? You want to see Spider-Man swinging around, and then you got this lady singing about, like, why won't Spider-Man fuck me? <laughs> like, that's I mean, I think there know. can be love in... Like, like WWE is like my... like When I think about what a 12-year-old boy is into, and I know as a 12-year-old boy, I myself was not into WWE, but, like, there's women, and there's, like, plot lines involving women, but there's always a lot of action. Like, there's not a lot of mm. dwelling on... The, the crushes that they have on each other you know right and also spider-man always ends up with mary jane so it's like yeah. he's already with mary jane why do we need to worry about this lady who no is attention. this lady i've never seen this lady before it's either mary jane or your back gets broken if you're gwen stacy yes so. that too <laughs> yeah so maybe arachne is lucky that you know, she isn't one of Spider-Man's love interest. Yeah. And Mary Jane gets kidnapped twice in this musical. So it's just not a good idea to be one of Spider-Man's love interests. Yeah. Like a Super Mario fake out, right? You think you won, but you haven't. Yep. She yeah. gets well, captured like, again. Yeah, the Green Goblin kidnaps her and the Spider-Man saves her. And then Arachne kidnaps her and tries to suffocate her at the end of the show. But <laughs> so, Lord. Yep. All right. Well, we're going to get into what Glenn Berger thought he needed to do the fix the show the next day bono called burger and you're gonna love this rob uh bono revealed to him that he and edge were sending secret agents to see the show and report back to them what they thought while the boys were busy doing you two things <laughs> and they couldn't see it themselves so they <laughs> so burger pitched cutting deeply furious from the show and tightening the ending and bono agreed that these changes would fix the problems that he said his secret agents had with the show so. i'm just I'm at, I'm at the bar now and the, and the guy's like hitting on a girl and she's like what do you do for a living he's like oh a musical theater secret agent <laughs> for bono and the edge <laughs> yeah, well then, now see now he's getting laid but the first <laughs> part i'm not so sure <laughs> To cut deeply furious from the show. This was dubbed Plan A. And Bono said that he would call Tamor and describe Plan A to her. And apparently the two had a two-hour-long conversation that did not go well. And Bono said that she seemed really defensive about Arachne. As long as Tamor was involved, it didn't seem like Plan A was happening. Berger and Tamor had a great relationship these past few years, so he wrote her an email detailing why he thought Plan A was a good idea, and trying not to be harshly critical of Tamor's ideas, he ended the email with, love you, and he sent it to her, not expecting to hear back right away, um, but she called him practically immediately after he sent it, and said, No, if all of you think the cut is such a great idea, you can do it without me, because that isn't a cut. It's a mastectomy. Whoa. <laughs> yes. Whoa. And that was just cutting out one of Arachne's songs. How many songs she, did she have again? Uh, she sings the first one. She sings Turn Off the Dark. She sings In Rise Above. She sings Deeply Furious, Deeply Furious Reprise. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something after Deeply Furious I can't remember the name of. That's and then she the sings the it, world. Love Me and Kill Me. That's yeah. seven songs. Let it go, man. Yeah, seven songs for one character. It's... Yeah. Who isn't the main character? <laughs> right. At this point, Berger started reaching out to the other creatives behind Tamor's back to see what they thought of Plan A. George Seipen responded to him saying, This change is a matter of life or death for the show. He was on board. It seemed that everyone Berger told about it, Plan A was for it. Tamor went away for five days, and in that time, Plan A was spread to everyone, and everyone was voicing their approval. January 3rd, the day before Tamor was supposed to return to New York, Berger had a secret meeting with Bono and Edge, and he explained to them the revisions he wanted to make for the show, and they were completely on board. They then planned that the next night they would have a meeting with Tamor, and they would convince her to do Plan A. 
January 4th arrives, and after the previews, Bono Edge, Berger, and Michael Cole, the producer of the show, lead producer of the show, and Tamor were all in the VIP room where the four men were trying to convince Tamor that Act 2 became the Arachne show and things needed to be changed. She didn't listen to a single thing she said, or they said, dug in her heels, and said that all three of Arachne's temper tantrum songs needed to be included. She said things like, it's part of Peter's arc and stuff, that, like, these, if you take it out, it ruins the entire story. And it's like, I... A character, I don't know, just a character that isn't Peter Parker taking one of their songs out of the show would ruin Peter Parker's arc. I think that's a problem. Yeah, there's a, I don't understand this at all. I mean, there was a time when I was in my early 20s and I was making theater where I had this kind of reaction when people wanted to make changes to what I was doing because I was a new artist, director, you know, whatever. You got to outgrow that though, man. Like you can't Mm -hmm. keep on that way. If you don't outgrow that, you can't survive. But somehow she's still Julie Tamor. Like she's made it this far, but she can't listen when she's the asshole, you know, when everybody else in the room is saying, I mean, Rob, I I love your theater and you are a a genius, but you didn't make Lion King on Broadway. That's true. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I mean, and also, too, another thing that, like, Julie Taymor is sort of famous for is her uncompromising vision. And she's kind of, it's almost like Disney with Epcot, where he was, like, he was proving people wrong his entire life. Julie Taymor never gave up on her vision, and she was constantly winning, except for when she wasn't. Yeah, that's the risk. I mean, and it's antithetical to what we do as artists. I mean, in theater, go be like a painter or a novelist or something where you have like one editor. But in theater, you're working with, you know, dozens and dozens of people. Yes. And if everyone is telling you that it's bad and that it needs to be changed, you have to listen. It's just mm-hmm. crazy. It's theater is a collaborative art. And if you don't want to collaborate, don't do theater. Like you just can't. Exactly. It's pretty rare that you're in a situation where your vision is absolutely correct and everyone else is bonkers. I mean, Walt Disney had a bunch of people who were with him. He just had people against him, right? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there was yes. a crew of people saying, oh yeah, Walt, we can do this. This is a great, this is a cool idea. But in that scenario, she doesn't have anyone saying that to her. No, not a single person was on board with this show anymore. Even the actors, none of them. And she even like, I pointed out George Seipin saying that he was on board with Berger because she was like, George is never going to go for this. Like, he's never going to go for it. He likes me too much. And then Berger went to him and Seipin was like, no, we need to do this. Like the show is going to die without this change. (laughs) So it's like, she just had no idea what was going on this whole time. (laughs) She just became obsessed with this character. And I think, you know, she assumed everyone would be on her side, but then they didn't, she didn't, I think, guess, put into account that this cost $300 million and mm-hmm. that, you know, producers don't want something that's worth $300 million to be bad. Yes. And also, like, to not make any money. Like, after mm. these previews, nobody was going to go see it because it's like, it's a bad show. Nobody wants to watch this show. Uh, except for the people who were there to see it be like a car crash, like a NASCAR. Yeah, and, yeah, like my mom said. <laughs> yes, which is actually something that people said like in the book too. And that was another thing is Julie Taymor refused to read any of the reviews. She said, I'm not even going to read the good ones. And Glenn Berger was like, what good ones? <laughs> yeah, they weren't getting any good reviews, but she was saying, oh, I'm just not reading any of the reviews, even the good ones, but they weren't getting any good ones. And that's why she wouldn't listen or read them. I will say it's not uncommon for like actors, artists in process to not read reviews uh, like the stage manager's job, some stage managers, their role is to cut out good reviews and post them on the board. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, but they don't post bad reviews because it would bring down the morale of the oh, group. Oh, for sure. Namor, mm. though, is not really like actively performing. So I don't know. It's it's really up to the individual artists as far as critics are concerned, because they can also be wildly wrong about a commercial product, as we all know. Oh, yeah. An audience can love something while the critics hate it. In this case, what they were trying to create, in my opinion, was something that the critics would hate and the audience would love because it's a big, poppy, schlocky Spider-Man show yes. that a 12-year-old boy just eats up. Like a critic's not going to say, ah, what genius. But she, with this Arachne character, she's trying to get that critical response. What a genius. And and yet she's not even looking.
looking to read that. Like that's that is that is strange. I I think that if they were getting good reviews, she would have read it. I think is the thing. Somebody, her assistant, right, <laughs> saying, yeah. "Nope, don't, don't pick up the New York Times today." <laughs> yes, yes, honestly. So yeah, so after all that arguing, it seems that Plan A was uh, once again in limbo. So January seventh, Jerry Harris told Berger, "This is so weird. Okay, this is going to sound really weird, but this is what happens." And I don't know his last name, so don't ask. But January seventh, Jer- Jerry Harris told Berger about. Jack the stagehand, who apparently rewrites scripts for fun and said maybe he should just hear what Jack has to say in case it could inspire some changes. So Jack the stagehand was actually a stagehand working on Spider-Man. I don't know how Jerry Harris learned of Jack and <laughs> I don't know Jack's last name. And But uh, Jack, he Jerry Harris gave Jack the stagehand Berger's email and Jack emailed him and his suggestion changed everything. Like Berger said he didn't even read his entire email because the first sentence was all he needed. The Green Goblin didn't die in Act One. That was the change he wanted to make. The stagehand. The stagehand. This is a bold move by a stagehand. You, you could get fired for this. When the right, producer Will? is the one being like, oh, no, you should email the co-writer. Of this. I, <laughs> go, go stagehand, go. <laughs> That's, I swear to God, it just like pops out of nowhere. It's like one or two paragraphs in the book. And it's just like Jack the Sage, stagehand gave me the idea to save Where the show. Where is this like... man? I need him to work at the college with us. <laughs> <laughs> you did it, Jack. But <laughs> He could really help with how. Halloween. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so and this is something that honestly seems relatively obvious, but I guess when you're so stuck in this like arachne bit that you know, like arachne has to be the final battle, when you think about the green goblin being the final battle, you're like, "Oh my god, you're right. This is a Spider-Man musical. The green goblin should be the final boss." And um and that's what they wanted to do and Berger dubbed this plan plan x <laughs> so uh, we've jumped from a to x yes as in axe tamor <laughs> <laughs> yeah basically so well actually this is pretty funny too so harris comes up to Berger and it's like hey did you get jack's email <laughs> and Berger's like yeah i think i want to change some things and Harris is like, stop talking. Let's go to dinner. And like they leave the theater so nobody will hear them. And they go to dinner to the talk about Plan X. And then they talk about how they can plan it without uh, Tamor finding out because she would lose her mind. <laughs> yeah. Rob Bissinger was the next person who needed to be brought into the loop because the change would cut a scenic element from the show. And when the idea was brought to him, uh, Bissinger said he believed it could be done and that it should be done. And then a few days later, the entire cast and crew were having a party to celebrate what would have been the show's opening night at the Spotted Pig, which was owned by either Bono or The Edge. Berger jumped into a car with the boys and some composer assistants, but they made sure that Julie Taymor was not in the car. <laughs> so they were perfectly safe because I don't think Julie Taymor had any secret agents or bugs anywhere hidden in the car. That and he you told, know of. Yeah, that I know of or that Berger knows of. <laughs> yeah. But Julie did not know about Plan X yet because when she learns about Plan X, it's a big thing. And he told everyone about Plan X and everyone was on board. And apparently Bono like grabbed Berger's hand and very dramatically said, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> what a weirdo he's so weird <laughs> and so everyone seemed in relatively good spirits at the party because uh chris tierney was there which if you remember chris tierney was the one that like fell into the 30 foot pit and broke basically every bone in his body but he's been pretty well recovered and um he's at the party and then in the middle of the party julie Taymor gets up and gives a speech saying it didn't matter what the public thought of the musical and that what mattered was that they were staying true to their original vision and everyone at this point turned on Taymor. and when i say everyone i mean everyone and it sounded like from that speech that she didn't care if the show closed and it sounded like to everyone that she was saying she had no intentions intentions of fixing the show and edge after hearing this was pissed i can't believe she just said that he went to burger at the end of the night at the end of the night and whispered into his ear as her partners and her friends it is right to support julie and her vision but 
It is also right, at the same time, to continue on a separate track and develop this other plan, should we need it. And well, then Bon, yeah. So why not just do the thing that fixes it? Because she's clearly off the edge. Not, not, not the edge. <laughs> An edge. I, so they need. I think what their idea was with Plan X was that they didn't want Julie Taymor gone because they were all still friends with her. However, she was very quickly pissing everyone off, especially with that speech. It, that speech turned everyone against her like the entire cast like people like i'm shocked it must have like after she finished that speech you must have been able to hear a pin drop in the room because like everybody was like what did she just say (laughs) i think that their idea was that they wanted to really have a solid ground for plan x and like really make the plans elaborate and like concrete And then they would take it to Julie and be like, see how this fixes the show? This will fix everything. That way she couldn't, like, nitpick and take it apart. They wanted to make it, like, super solid first, is what I think. Okay. Because they were still planning on taking the plan to her. At this point, they still were not thinking about getting her fired. But although it sounds like the edge was like, no, I think Julie should leave. He was so angry that night, apparently. Bono then told Berger that the meeting to discuss Plan X with Tamor would be held on Wednesday, January 12th. Berger reached out to Sipin and Bissinger to let them know the status of the plan, and he ended his email with, But keep it under the hat. (laughs) So it's like full-blown, like, spies and secretness and everything. Like, it really is like he's launching a coup against her. I love it. It's amazing. But he thinks she's just going to be like, oh, cool, good idea. Mm, I don't, I don't know. I think they wanted to give her one last chance, but I think that in, like you said, in their heart of hearts, that they knew that she was never going to accept it. Mm. Yeah, I think that that they wanted her to you know, step down and so they didn't have to fire her. I think it was just like, let's tell her our plan and her just be like, nope, I don't want to do that. So I'm just going to leave instead of like, yeah, we're going to do this and you're fired. You know, that way there's no bad blood. But mm. I see that. I've seen that in my professional life. In my experience, you run the risk of that just not happening. And then you have a more awkward situation than if you had just said, we're doing this and you're not involved anymore. <laughs> So everyone online was also saying that they believe that the Spidey Goblin fight should happen at the end of the show to fix all the problems with the show. And apparently on the afternoon of January 11th, Tamor even said herself that it could be a good idea. And when Berger, when Berger was like, you you think this is a good idea? Like, I, we should talk about this. And Tamor was like, oh, Glenn, don't think about that now. And she told him not to tell Cole or Harris, although they already knew. Once you open that door, they'll want to do it. And then, forget it. It'll be a theme park show. This is how shows die, when people start abandoning the vision that got us here. I... What vision? (laughs) For Spider-Man? It needs to be a a theme park show. That's the whole point. Exactly! It's just crazy! Oh my god! It just doesn't make any sense. Even Lion King's a theme park show, but like you just add the puppets to it. Yes, I honestly, I feel like all the puppetry makes it a theme park show. And I also don't understand why theme park show has to have such a negative connotation, but they use it like it's like you're saying the show is shit. And it's like, come on now. Well, it ain't art, but that doesn't mean that it can't be fun. Yeah, exactly. Like, Disney World shows are really fun. And like they like the Aladdin extravaganza or whatever they, they used to have. Like I thought that was pretty cool looking and didn't think it like you know think anything like oh this is award worthy but i was like oh it's pretty cool i'm having fun (laughs) yeah that's what and that's what spider-man should have been is a show to have fun but julie tamor and bono and edge and honestly glenberger too were like no we're gonna make this a work of art this is going to be amazing and bono and the edge oh my goodness none (laughs) of those people should be they don't make art they make pop music they make pop things i mean Mm -hmm. i get that I don't know. It's confusing. Hi, yay, yay. Like, even as I'm saying that, like, yes, rock music, even their music, especially their music about Ireland and Irish politics. Like, yes, there's a message there, but 
it's got a hook and, and it's fitting with the you know musical styles of the 80s and people like to listen to it and they put it on apple phones and stuff it it's just <laughs> like it's not i mean i don't know know your role yep also know your role when you do de- say yes i'll make a spider-man musical but yeah i mean it's like yeah yeah and again just they just did it because allegedly because andrew lloyd weber was just like no one makes rock musicals like i do and they're just like oh yeah well let's let's show him (laughs) let's show the daddy of of broadway what we can do (laughs) don't call him that please and arachne (laughs) is like a like i feel like Green Goblin and Spider-Man and the fight, this is the core of what they got handed. And then they built Arachne or Tamor did separate from that or out of that. So the core story was always the Green Goblin and that whole arc, right? Yes, except to that they ended it in Act 1. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and the thing is, too, is like they really did. They took a lot of inspiration from the Tobey Maguire movie, which featured him fighting the Green Goblin. And I think that's a good idea. If you're making a Spider-Man musical, it should be it should be about Spider-Man versus the Green Goblin. This would be like making a Batman musical. Because, like, you know, everybody knows how much Batman and the Joker, like, they have to fight. Like, they, they are the arch nemesis or whatever. You make a Batman musical, Batman kills Joker... And in act one, and then some creepy bat lady is like, Batman, why won't you fuck me? (laughs) The whole second half of the musical. I'd be so pissed. I'd be like, what the fuck is this shit? And it's not even, wouldn't even be like Poison Ivy or, you know, one of the regular characters you'd see. Exactly. Or Completely different thing. Yes. Something that doesn't exist in the lore of Batman or Spider-Man. It's just so weird. And then on top of that, I personally think that this is another insult, is that they say that the Sinister Six, which is something that appears in Spider-Man, and in Spider-Man, the Sinister Six is made up of real people, although they're all like weird and supervillains and stuff. They are real people. In this musical, they try to claim that Arachne, who does not exist in Superman or uh, Spider-Man lore, <laughs> is the reason that they exist that they are just illusions of hers and i it's just like no you can't just create a new character who then creates all these other characters that people already know it, it to me that just feels really weird i have to make this comparison and apologies this is very much the twin peaks problem listeners if you are twin peaks fans i think you can identify the twin peaks problem here now that david lynch creates this it lasts for two seasons savannah will do you know twin peaks either I of you? Did not oh, yeah i do them. i do you gotta oh so will will's on board you gotta watch this Savannah. it is an incredible it's, two seasons there's some it's weird yes it's good so the, the problem the twin peaks problem that david lynch had is is a murder mystery who killed laura palmer is the question for the show and he solves that midway through season two he tells you who killed Laura Palmer and I won't spoil it for you. But then what David Lynch does is he takes this um, extra evil, like cosmic evil that is somehow responsible for the death of Laura Palmer and pivots the plot to focus on that. And what happens at the end of season two is some of the finest and most bizarre television that I think has ever made it to network until of course, David Lynch went to HBO and created a bizarre 12 15 hours of more of that weirdness but he lost his audience when he answered his question who killed laura palmer mm. it seems like he tamor also, is he also made a movie of it too oh yeah and the movies were i mean i am a huge fan of everything about this yeah. i will watch i've watched the movies i've watched it all i watched the hbo series i patiently sat through it i even watched some of them twice it really <laughs> takes an aficionado like i love the weird but the general audience for Twin Peaks, when it was on network television, was not on board with the weird. They wanted to solve the mystery. And when it was over, it was over. Tamor is doing the same thing with Arachne. She solves the problem, but then claims that there's this grander evil at work and that she hasn't actually mm-hmm. solved the Peter Parker problem. I mean, script-wise, yeah. you know, play, uh, play structure-wise dramatic structure if the main villain is the green goblin then you've ruined your show because we need to go to the end but her claim and her character arc and her 
you know, quest for Spider-Man is claiming that there's something grander going on. David Lynch gets away with it with many people because Twin Peaks was a bizarre show and it had enough weirdness in it that it got to kick on and spawn all these fans. I don't know that you can accomplish that in two hours of theater, though. No, and not with someone, not with a character that is as well established as Spider-Man. Yeah, and I don't, yeah. she doesn't have the chops of a David Lynch. Like, she's not, she doesn't <laughs> no, think David in Lynch surreal ways. original characters, so he, like, you know, had a way to make you care about these original characters. And, and Mark Frost, of course, also creates these characters with David Lynch. Don't want to get yelled at by Twin Peaks fans. Savannah? <laughs> I wouldn't want that to happen. They're no. hardcore. <laughs> ruin, my, ruin my whole year. All right, well... To continue on, um, remember how I said earlier how Julie Tamor was like, I'm not going to read any of the good reviews or the bad reviews. Well, she got one good review and she like flaunted it everywhere. And uh, this is another very weird part of the story. Um, so the person who gave them the good review was Glenn Beck, who is a leader in the Tea Party movement. Yes, Glenn Beck. Glenn yes. Jon Stewart used to roast him all the time on The Daily Show. I bet. It, it, he loved the show. Like, he went on his morning talk show the next day after seeing it and was like, this show is amazing. Like, everybody needs to see this show. And he was talking about, like, the version with Arachne as, like, basically the main character. Well, so I, what, what Tucker Carlson it has been to MAGA, you know, conservatives, that's what Glenn Beck was to Tea Party conservatives on Fox mm. News. Well, Glenn, Glenn Beck also, he was the guy that I think during COVID came out and said, like, yeah, I don't care if my kid dies. Like, <laughs> he died for a good cause. He's a strange duck, big conspiracy guy. He would have all the red lines, you know, the strings like mm. Charlie Day. Yeah, big oh, in, he would literally do that on TV. That is so weird. And he loved this musical. <laughs> he loved this musical. And, and Julie Taymor said, I'm with this tea party guy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and and then this also seemed to bolster her confidence because later that day, like Glenn Beck or not Glenn Beck, Glenn Berger. <laughs> Glenn Berger walked into the like theater and she was with the dancers and she was expanding deeply furious. And she was she was like, we're not cutting it out. We're making it longer. <laughs> Did she get confused? Did she think that Beck liked it, not Glenn Beck? No. And she knew. Oh, she, she knew it was knew Glenn it was Beck. That guy. Yeah. She knew it wasn't Beck. No. Okay. She, Burger. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even Beck liking it would be weird because he's Scientology. So Yeah, I guess. He, yeah, but his music's good, so. Yeah. Oh, um, Oh, you guys are talking about someone else entirely, but I have no idea who you're talking about. I you don't just know about that. You know Beck. You know. You know. Sure. Rock. Okay. Well, anyway. <laughs> um, I'm a loser. Is that him? Yeah. Right? Isn't that him? The yeah. meeting was supposed to be happening that night, the night that she decided she wanted to expand Deeply Furious. And so uh, everybody was prepared. Like, it was like they asked Julie Tamar to go to the VIP room. And they were, like, all in a separate room being, like, basically hyping themselves up, being like, okay, we're going to convince her to do Plan X tonight. And so Michael Cole goes into the room to see, like, where Julie's head is at. And apparently, I, I don't know what they were arguing about, but they got into a huge fight where Julie Taymor, like, quit several times and that he had to, like, chase her back and blah 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 and so like glenn Berger ran up to him and was like what like wasn't she that upset about plan x and cole was like i didn't even talk about plan x and i'm like what the what were they fighting about then but so because of the fight between cole and tamor they were pushing off the meeting for plan x again so <laughs> and then speaking of postponements and pushing back opening night was getting moved again from february 7th to march 15th the ides of march <laughs> the day that Caesar was murdered. <laughs> and, uh, and the critics at this point were very angry that opening night was getting pushed back again. So in protest, they decided that uh, they were going to come review the show on February 7th anyway and just treat it as if it was opening night. And the night, uh, yeah, the night ended up getting dubbed as a uh, opening night. There were more secret car meetings, secret Edge's apartment meetings, and a secret interview for a replacement director. And finally, it was time for opening night. 
and the reviews were not great, as to be expected. It also didn't help that it was the most technically disastrous show since December. So on February 18th, Berger decided to take a chance, and he wrote an email to Tamor detailing Plan X. And in the most, like, sitcom-y way possible, she hadn't missed a single email of his ever, but for some reason, she missed this email. And so she didn't read it. And then the next day they were talking about something and it made him think that she had read it and denied it. So they just never talked to each other about Plan X. And she never read the email. So she didn't actually know about Plan X. They ended up setting a new date for February 26th to discuss Plan X. And they actually went through with this meeting. Although at this meeting... Berger kind of chickened out. He he didn't he wanted to try and play both sides. So Michael Cole, Jerry Harris, Berger and Tamar were there. Maybe I think the Edge was also there, but I don't remember for sure. But basically those three people, Edge, Michael Cole and Jerry Harris were like, "Julie Tamar, we need the we need to change the show." And Glenn Berger is then like yeah, but, like, we don't have to change it that much, though. And so, like, he's making the producers pissed at him. And then Julie Taymor is still pissed at him because she's like, you you want to change the show. And so, like, he succeeded in making everyone angry with him instead of being like, oh, I'm the middleman. I'm okay. I don't know what happened here, why he was all of a sudden like, well, maybe we can still do some things for Julie. Like, no, you know that the show is failing. Like, stick up for it. You were the one who came up with Plan X. Stick up. Well, Jake, Jack the Stagehand came up for it. But you you probably wrote a little bit more than Jack the Stagehand. But they sat in this room for five hours talking about this. And at the end of that five hours, Bono wasn't there. So they decided not to hold a vote on whether or not to change the show because... Bono wasn't there and they were like, well, we want Bono's vote. So it just like they just argued in a room for five hours and then nothing came of it. Tamor had to leave uh, New York for a few days at the beginning of March because she was going to do a TED talk. And Berger had a meeting with the producers and the boys where they fully fleshed out Plan X. And it was now happening. Like it was going to happen with or without Julie Tamor and most likely without Julie Tamor. And Oh, never mind. It was without because I just read my own notes and it said when Tamor re- would return to New York, she would be fired. <laughs> so they were like, OK, no, Tamor's out. And so two weeks after sending the Plan X email to Tamor, she finally reads it and calls Glenn Berger at 3.30 in the morning. And she is screaming at him, telling him the plan is incoherent and that he doesn't have a soul. Like she like just legit had a major breakdown and temper temper tantrum. And the next day she was officially fired. <laughs> So that's how Julie Tamor went out of this musical. That's how I'd expect. Yeah. yeah she went out on a high note. Literally, <laughs> <but>. <laughs> so then the next day, I don't know who Chris Ashley is. Do you know, Will, a director? Is he a director? Chris, on Christopher Ashley. He's the uh, director of uh, Come From Away. He <gasps> actually also directed uh, Escape to Margaritaville and the Diana musical. Oh, boy. Like, well, uh, yes, Escape from, from Margaritaville, away. that fine, searching, <laughs> penetrating, dark work of art. Yep. Okay, but Come From Away is like one of the best musicals ever, Rob. It's really good. But... How about Diana? How did that? That didn't. That's that not did not go well because no. they, they, uh, it opened or like previews started right before COVID and then they had to shut down and then they had a genius idea of like, let's film it during COVID and release it on Netflix so that when it comes back to Broadway, when Broadway reopens, It'll be a massive hit, and that is not what happened. <laughs> well, anyway, so Chris <laughs> Ashley, Christopher yeah. Ashley. Who will either uh, kill your show or it'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Michael Cole somehow, like, had him come to a show, sat him down, and basically, to me, it sounds like held him hostage until he was like, yes, I will be the new director of Turn Off the Dark. Twelve hours later, Ashley called Cole and was like, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> Uh, so they ha- they were like, oh, new director, uh, Christopher Ashley. And then they were like, oh, never mind. And so then they ended up hiring this guy, Phil McKinley, to be the new director of Turn Off the Dark. And McKinley had never directed anything on Broadway. He only directed things for the Ringling Bros Circus. 
But at this point, they didn't really have anyone else and they needed a new director fast. And honestly, this thing was basically a circus anyway. So <laughs> Might as well. Uh, yeah, might as well. Colvin told the cast that the opening night was being pushed back again to June 14th, the same time he told them that Tamor would be taking a leave of absence. And everyone was so upset that the actors planned on walking out and quitting and leaving the show stranded. But all the actors came together, whined together, and then they went on with the show. And that night would be their 100th preview. So another thing that was kind of weird about this new script is that Instead of just letting Glenn Berger write it, the investors were all like, oh, but he helped write the other script. So maybe he's not as good as he thinks. So they brought in this new guy named Roberto Aguirre Sacasa to be a script consultant on Turn Off the Dark. But there was a, a really big miscommunication where uh, Sacasa was under the impression that Glenn Berger had been fired <laughs> so that he was the sole co-writer of the show. I mean, co not co-writer, sole writer of the show. And Glenn Berger was like, you are not a writer. You are my script consultant. And so they did not get along. They didn't start off on the best foot and they didn't get along very well, but they did end up sort of working together. But because uh, I think Glenn Berger went to Cole and was like, hey, what the heck? And he was like, he's your co-writer, now get over it or you're fired. And so Berger was like, okay, I'm over it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think this is a funny quote, too. So Sakasa, I think he, he wrote some Spider-Man comics, which is actually like, I think that's a good idea to have him on your Spider-Man musical. Finally. Um, and yeah, right. And then, but he was also like a playwriter as well. And Julie Taymor directed The Tempest, while she was making this musical and Glenn and so Glenn Berger points this really funny coincidence out towards the end of the book and he says so Julie made a tempest making the male Prospero a sympathetic female I made a tempest sympathetic to the betrayer and Roberto he too wrote a play based on the tempest it's called rough magic and Prospero is the villain and the hero of the play Melanie Porter, she's a dramaturg, a script doctor, and she has magical powers. It just seems to fit the situation at hand really well. <laughs> it just got weird how like that mess. worked out. Yeah. Berger and Sakasa McKinley worked together to write a new script, and it seems like Berger was getting boxed out. Um, anything that was dark about the show was being removed, and Arachne would barely be in the show at all. Yeah, sure, all the bad things were being removed, but anything that gave the show any substance at all was also being removed. And Berger wasn't happy, but Sakasa McKinley loved the new script, and it didn't seem like they cared in the slightest what he thought. <laughs> so Bono and Edge... Like, Berger, like, emailed them and was like, guys, the new script sucks. We need to do something about this. So Bono and Edge, like, they read the script and they were like, yeah, this sucks. And they went to Cole and because they were like, yeah, we're going to launch a coup now against this guy. And Cole was like, everybody needs to sit down and shut up. We're dealing with this. And you, if you don't like it, you're fired. So, <laughs> so this is the script. We're done. No more yes, coups. No more coups. <laughs> Who's closed? Yeah. And so Berger after that kind of did. He just sat down and shut up and was like, all right, I'm here. Friday, March 25th, the cast had their first read through for 2.0. And at the end, everyone loved it. It was shorter, funnier, and easier to understand. And they thought, finally, they have a hit on their hands. And Cole would get approval from Marvel to shut down the show so it could be revamped. And soon enough, on April 17th, Turn Off the Dark 1.0 would have its final performance. It was never officially recorded, so other than the bootleg versions you can sometimes find online, this piece of theater history will be lost to time, which I'm actually kind of sad about because I wish that I could see it because I watched a really crappy bootleg of it where you can't even really see the stage. At one point of closing, the actors held up a held up signs at the curtain call saying the show will be back May 12th. So now let me explain to you 2.0's version of Turn Off the Dark and what was changed. We still start out with the tale of Arachne, and it's framed as Peter Parker telling the story for a class presentation, which is sort of the same as 1.0, except you don't have the geek chorus to help explain things. The geek chorus was actually the first thing to get the axe. Like, they cut that thing out of the show as soon as they had control of the script. After that, things stay relatively the same. Peter is mopey because he's a nerd. MJ is sad because she has an abusive father. <laughs> and uh, then they go on a field trip to Oscorp. Peter gets bitten by the spider. He gets spider powers. Uncle Ben dies after Peter, uh, after Peter beats up a weird inflatable wrestler, which is something that I really hated 
when I was watching the bootleg of 2.0, they like when Peter goes to the wrestling match, instead of it being an actual actor, it's just this giant, ugly, inflatable wrestler man. And I was like, oh, this has to be something Phil McKinley did. Like, this is disgusting. And then it's not, though. This is something that Joy Taylor put in the show. And I'm like, this is so ugly. This is so stupid. And it's just like an actor jumping on a bouncy wrestler fake man and it's so weird anyway I just there's no like cool up. choreography around it nope yeah. <laughs> and uh j jonah jameson is in the play a lot more he was in the original but he barely did anything and he's he has a much bigger role he starts having the daily bugle publishing stories about how spidey is actually a villain and not a hero he sort of replaces arachne in terms of being like a secondary villain although he's not like a villain villain or whatever but Anyway, then finally, at the end of Act 1, Norman Norman Osborn becomes the Green Goblin, killing his wife in the process. And this is definitely a lot better paced. Instead of him becoming the Green Goblin and then dying at the end of Act 1, he becomes the Green Goblin at the end of Act 1. And uh, Act 2, I still think, is a hot mess, though. So it begins with the Green Goblin kidnapping scientists that used to work for him, and he puts them through experiments, turning them into the Sinister Six. Is that how it is real for real? No. All right. I mean, in the comics, it's all imaginary, friends. It's all imaginary. Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like that's not as, like, bad. I just think having the Sinister Six in your musical at all is... That's not just one villain, but, like, on top of the one villain, six more. So you have seven villains in your musical. That, like, works for a haunted house, but you're right. In a musical, that's just too much to keep track of. It's crazy. Too much merchandising. It's it's insane. It, it, it's way too many, and it mucks up the whole show, I think. And so, like, the Sinister Six run amok, and Spidey stops them all at the expense of his relationship with MJ and Aunt May. And after defeating all six villains, Peter decides to quit being Spider-Man so he can rebuild his relationships. But this makes the Green Goblin angry. He takes over every TV in New York, tells Spider-Man that if he doesn't come and fight him, he'll kill all of Spidey's loved ones. Peter decides to be Spider-Man once again, goes and fights the Green Goblin on top of the Chrysler building while MJ dangles from it. Peter shoots a web at the Green Goblin's piano, attaching him to it, and when the Green Goblin pushes the piano off, he is dragged down to his death with it. And then MJ reveals she guessed that it was Peter under the mask the whole time. They kiss, and then he swings off to stop more crime. So that... It's better. It's more comprehensible. I wanted them to have sex at the end. (laughs) Well, I I also want to want to tell listeners that if they really want to see what this was all about, there's a performance uh, from the David Letterman show of Green Goblin performing Freak Like Me. And it is bonkers. It's so weird. They and Bono and Edge hated that song, and I'm going to get into it in just a second, but they hated that song. That's um, an Act 2 song, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. So it's a new one that they had to write for this new musical that they didn't really like. And, and the Letterman show restaged it, Will, on their, their sound studio? Yeah, he like had them going through the audience and like you know all the inflatable people... <laughs> Uh, running um running amok throughout the studio. I and didn't see that. I think but they, I'm they, I think they messed with Paul Schaefer a bit, but like in a cute way. And I'm just like, this is this is so camp. Oh yeah. boy. Well, that's perfect for Paul and Dave, but I don't know about the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> People might have thought in Letterman that it was a joke. Maybe because he would he 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 was known for elaborate jokes you know, on his show. And unfortunately for everyone in this cast, that working on 2.0 wasn't a cakewalk either. McKinley was super crude and knew nothing about musical theater, let alone like any theater at all. Although a lot of the blocking and costumes and the set stayed the same, McKinley still managed to make some decisions that were very strange. And the weirdest one, I think personally, is that he basically fired, well, he didn't, he did fire him, but he ghosted him. Danny Ezrelo, the choreographer. But the dancing wasn't a problematic part of the show. And then they ended up hiring this guy named Chase Brock, who was apparently not so great of his um, reputation. And then Brock started uh, brocking up 
every dance in the show, which is like, I don't know, his thing. Like He has like, a style. Yeah. He brocked it. Oh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, those guys doing over there, they're brocking around. Yeah. Doing so a bit it, of brocking. An example of brocking up the choreography is in the opening song, after the dancers weave a tapestry for Arachne, they kneel on the ground, and now instead of just sitting there, they were doing the eensy-weensy spider dance with their hands. Hmm. That's that. And then well, also then. McKinley had a moment where he really wanted to put these girls in a freak like me in a shirt that said goblins goddesses and apparently this is a charlie sheen reference huh? that yeah so apparently the, so this is about the time when charlie sheen was apparently uh, like having his total make breakdown he called the prostitutes my goddesses yes yes exactly exactly so somebody was like made a joke and was like oh these girls they're like a goblins goddesses and mckinley was like that's amazing and he like ordered the costume department to make him a bunch of shirts that said goblins goddesses on it but luckily mckinley and sakasa no not mckinley uh burger and sakasa were on the same page and were like no 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 we cannot put this in the show and they talked him out of it but he was still like i still think it's a good idea <laughs> yeah and then, i'm trying to think how we can tell people who charlie sheen is if they're young enough to not know what two and a half men was like he of course had a career going back to the 80s his dad is martin sheen who is very good at acting uh but i, I don't know what to do he was on this sitcom you guys yeah. <laughs> and it was and really he... it was the most popular it was a huge sitcom it was terrible like friends and all sitcoms most sitcoms uh, it was just awful but um two and a half men yeah, two and, and a half he men. went totally ballistic he and, was at the top of his game, though, television-wise. Like, the man was making millions of dollars on this show. And then, and go then ahead he started man. drinking tiger blood or something. Right, yeah, he started <laughs> saying crazy stuff. But he was still, like, the the point of the meltdown, like, it's one thing when you're Lindsay Lohan and, like, it's over for you anyway. It's another thing when you're this guy and you're at the top of your game and you melt down and you ruin your career. But it involved prostitutes and tiger blood, yes, and all these. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised that you knew that because like I'd never heard anything like that. But I also was sort of a I was a kid when this I'm stuff a was a bit older anyway, than you. So. I've got a few years on you. <laughs> I mean, I did know I know all about this stuff, but I was also like following it religiously because I, I I liked two and a half men at the time, and I was like, what's going to happen to the show? <laughs> it disappeared, right? They replaced him, and then it disappeared. They replaced him with Ashton Kutcher, and then oh, yeah. it ended after, yeah. like, I think it went on for, like, four more seasons. And... Really? There were four seasons with Ashton Kutcher? Yep. Man, I didn't think America could stand him that long. We like him to come back periodically, but then we have a very limited appetite for Ashton. <laughs> Yes. So, well, speaking of a freak like me needs company, uh, Bono and Edge were having a horrible time writing that song, and it, it seems that they hated it and they had no inspiration, but because the Green Goblin had a much bigger part, he definitely needed another song. I like to bring this up because uh, I just think that this line is really sad <laughs> and kind of funny. So the boys invited Berger down to this empty music studio to hear what they had made. So I don't know why... Burger doesn't say why it's empty, but literally it's like all the equipment that they would, the minimum amount of equipment they would need to record this stuff. And then like a couch and a chair. And Bono is just sprawled out on the couch with a microphone in his hand, staring up at the ceiling, ad-libbing lines to try and put into this musical. And he, the, the one line that ended up sticking and actually is in the musical. If you're just looking for a night out on the town, oh yeah, just found me. I'm a $65 million circus tragedy. That is like how much money was put into the musical or like what the budget of the musical was considered, I think. Ooh, meta. Yeah. So Bono, Edge, and Berger were watching this show that they had a lot of passion for and fall around, fall apart around them. And now they felt very power powerless. They didn't have any say in what was going on. And although completely misguided and I guess blind to their own hubris, they thought that they were making a show that they could be proud of. And now all they're stuck with is making a show that they know for a fact will be nothing but mediocre, nothing but mediocre. And I think that they're very depressed about that, but it's also, but so they care now. I, it, it just strikes me that when they started, they're like, yeah, whatever. But all the suffering, now they're highly invested. Yeah. 
Right. I mean, am I right? Like Bono and the Edge in particular at the beginning, they were like, yeah, we'll write it, whatever. We don't care. Like musicals, yeah. whatever. We'll just write some music and we'll make some money. It'll be easy. I think, I think they did care. I mean, because they were very adamant. I don't know if you remember at the very beginning of the story, they were like, oh, this musical has to be amazing. It has to be amazing. And because they were going to beat Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yes, exactly. I, don't, I guess to me it just seems like a lark at the beginning. Like, yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be we're we're Bono and the Edge. We can write this music. It won't be hard. This will be yeah. easy. But the suffering and the hardness of it maybe where they weren't uh, you know counting on, and then they got really invested in it not bombing when they realized that they could be involved in something catastrophically bad from an artistic and perhaps liability standpoint. Yes. Yeah, I think so. It definitely was a bit demoralizing, I would say. Yeah, yeah. April 18th, Bono and Edge were still determined to take back control of this circus and to make Berger the one and only writer. They emailed Berger and gave him a top secret mission to rewrite the script and not to worry about McKinley or Sacasa so that they can make the show the way they want it. And Berger was like, no. We can't do this, guys. Like, by this point, the cast, producers, investors, and even Marvel had all decided that they loved this new version of the show. It was safe and it was easy. And Berger told, told the boys that it seems like at this point, all hope was lost for making a show that had any meaning. Well, at least to the boys. It already failed miserably before that, but they didn't exactly realize that. <laughs> And then after stomping all over 1.0's grave and pissing off a lot of people to the point that some of them quit, uh, McKinley managed to wrangle this circus in and previews for 2.0 started exactly when they said they would, May 12th. And so this will be a reoccurring theme where they set a date and they stick to it. So <laughs> no more postponements. Yeah. Yep. Berger actually recalls, too, that May 12th, 2005, six years earlier to the day, was the day, was the day that Tamar hired him to be a co-writer for Turn Off the Dark. <laughs> so the show ended up having 183 previews. It, wow. Yes. It opened on June 14th, 2011. And people liked the show enough. It got some good reviews, some bad reviews, but a lot of the reviews were just kind of like, meh which is honestly my review of the show too it's not offensively bad like 1.0 but it's it's just kind of boring and forgetful the uh, the only things that really got me like excited i say in quotation marks watching it was when i was like why is this happening like this is just such a stupid decision to make but everything else <laughs> that it, like and i don't like any of the songs Really, uh, the only one that I kind of like is If the World Should End, which is a song that Mary Jane sings. But every other song just kind of sucks. I don't like it. Mm. Uh, well, Rise Above was okay, actually. After watching it, I did have Rise Above stuck in my head. But even then, it's just like, whatever. It's still like, I haven't thought about it since that night. June 12th, the Tony Awards are happening. And Turn Off the Dark performed one of their numbers for uh, for it if the world should end the one that i kind of like and um this apparently made tay more nostalgic for the show and this is before opening night so she decided that she was going to come to opening night and michael cole was furious he was like no she's not coming to opening night she can't come to opening night he like completely banned her from coming like he took away tickets from people that he thought might give her tickets and stuff <laughs> like <laughs> he was like she is not getting in here but she did have someone Michael Cole didn't think about. And there is apparently like one of the music supervisors was a Tamor loyalist <laughs> and gave her a ticket. And so she shows up and Cole was furious. And so he found out who gave her the ticket and they were fired. <laughs> but, oh. but Tamor did make it like, it was a little awkward, but she was, she was fine. She was on good behavior. She didn't freak out or anything. And the only person that, and then, Cole didn't want to kick her out because that would, of course, be a giant thing. So, yeah. I don't think open. you can fire somebody. He probably, I know that he did fire that person, but I think you have a lawsuit on your hands. Well, I guess I'm just assuming that he fired the person. Oh, oh. Uh, the wording in the book says, oh, shit, I don't have the wording. I no. wrote it down that they were fired. No, we Basically, it was up, like <laughs> the wording was that the person who gave the ticket was not associated with turn off the dark after that night after that well that sounds like fired yeah i don't think yeah. you can do that i mean you just gave a ticket to, to a public performance to an individual and you got fired for it that doesn't seem appropriate 
Well, at this point, though. Yeah, what? That's the least the of your concerns. I know, I know. <laughs> the rules, like, there are no rules for Spider Man yeah, Turn Off yeah. the Dark anymore. <laughs> that's a little, that's like old school Hollywood Broadway. I don't think you could do that today. Probably not. I mean, you're not yeah. supposed to. I know people still do. <laughs> so finally, everyone was free of the nightmare that they had while they were working on the show. The only things that the actors and stage crews had to do now was perform, and all the creatives finally got to stop thinking about the show, and it seemed like the weight of the world was lifted off Berger's shoulders. However, he'd get one final jump scare from this show, and not even a week after opening, Berger gets an email from Edge, and it says, Glenn, how's it going? Have you had a break from Spidey? When can we start to do more tweaks? I feel there's another 10 to 15% to go. <laughs> <laughs> they just thought they could constantly edit it. Yes, they did. Yeah, when a show opens, you're not allowed to edit it, right? Well, I mean, there's a premise there because previews, theoretically, you're paying less to see the show. You're going with the knowledge that it's in previews and it's in process. After you open the show, the contract that you have with your audience is that you have finished the show, that they're not seeing a subpar work. I got you. But if you then continue to change it, then yes, your original audience who took a risk, right, to see you on opening night as it is, saw something crappier but paid full price for it. You see what I mean? Yep. Yeah, I do. I mean, I I know that I, did, I never really knew why that was a thing, but I did know that, like, you're not supposed to change it. And it totally makes sense. But yeah, Bono and Edge, because they know nothing about musical theater, we're like, yeah, let's keep changing it. I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah. I would, it, it really was like a jump scare for Glenberger, too. Like, he's like, I'm home. I don't have to think about Spider-Man ever again. And then the Edge emails him and is like, hey, bud, <laughs> like, let's work on Spider-Man. But yeah. yeah. I mean, there's in so, some businesses like, the, you know, teaching and stuff, if you get a new teacher, you get all the enthusiasm of the new teacher, but none of the experience, you know what I mean? So yeah. you, don't, you, you pay the same at the college, right, for my courses, whether I'm new or whether <laughs> I've been here. But you, there's a trade-off. On Broadway, there really isn't a trade-off. There's no upside to seeing an unfinished show, you know? No. Nope. Unless it's cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so the show ended up running fine for a few years, incident-free, until July 2013, um, until a dancer by the name of Daniel Curry accidentally ended up getting his leg crushed by the giant moving platform where Chris Tierney, like, fell, and uh, it it broke his leg completely, and it he wasn't going to be able to dance anymore after that. So that—and after that, more bad press and, I think, lawsuits and stuff— uh, the show was closed on January 4th, 2014. So Michael Cole talked about moving Turn Off the Dark to another theater in Las Vegas, but for some reason that plan fell through, probably because Cole was finally free and realized how much happier he was without running the show. And he, t- he did talk about touring the show through the States. However, that never happened either. And I think that's because it was just so much money to do. So yeah, so Spider-Man is... um closed and dead and no longer with us rip spider-man yes rip spider-man well do you have any closing thoughts here will or rob i think that disney is never going to take a risk on like any superhero musical because i mean there are stuff that could work but i know that they're not going to do it like i thought of i was like you could turn like you know one of the non-flying superheroes like you know dr strange and stuff you could turn into uh music or like a play or something because like harry potter is in the same theater as uh spider-man was and it's doing it's doing somewhat great it actually has like good effects and like people fly with the audience and no one gets hurt so <laughs> it's definitely possible that's more basic like peter pan style style stuff though right it's not yeah I mean, but there's also like there's a there's a underwater scene that they do and it, i'm just like so there's possible to do like really cool stuff like you know for tourists on broadway but you know spider-man just was ahead of its time is Disney still even getting up to original musicals anymore? Or is it just going back and no. repurposing old content? Yeah, and they're just repurposing. Because I think yeah. now they're working on like the Princess Bride and stuff. Now that they own Fox. Oh, uh, yeah. They're setting it to music. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And right. then also, but they are kind of making a musical based off of a superhero, except it's only going to be played at Disneyland. In the show Hawkeye, they 
they do a joke where it's like instead of it being Hamilton being the big musical, they made a musical about called Rogers, which is about Steve Rogers, who is Captain America. And people loved that joke so much in the show that they actually wrote like a mini musical of it. And they're going to be performing it in Disneyland and you can go see it. So they are kind of doing it, but they're doing it more so as a joke. And the stakes are super low there because you paid your hundred bucks to get into the park and you're getting entertained all day. It's not like you paid your hundred bucks and this better be good. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> this is it. This is the two hours. This is all I'm getting for my hundred dollars. Yep. Yeah, it's, that's the pressure there. I personally believe that it just, like the show was a failure from the second that they hired Tony Adams because nobody, he wasn't asking to make a Spider-Man musical. Why would you... Hire somebody. You have people asking to make a Spider-Man musical, and then you look at this guy who isn't asking to make a Spider-Man musical, and you're like, you, you'll do it. And then every other person that came on board were like, we don't want to make a Spider-Man musical, but they did it anyway. I just don't... Yeah. I just don't understand. It was... It's just such a strange... Ride. Hey! Yeah, strange (laughs) ride. (laughs) So in true turn off the dark fashion, we had some technical difficulties and we lost the very end of the recording where we were saying our goodbyes and everything. So I'm just going to do that for you guys right now. So of course, yet again, we had Will Alderson as our special guest. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Will. You can follow him on Instagram at TallKingWill. So T-A-L-L-K-I-N-G-W-I-L-L. He's awesome and very funny and is going to be doing some shows in New York City soon. So check out his Instagram if you live um, in the city. And then, of course, we have Rob C. Thompson. Voices, we had Andrew Mims, Brianna Literal, Neil Sigmund, and Brandon Walls. And then our sources for today were The Song of Spider-Man, written by Glenn Berger, and it was a fantastic book. I I listened to it on Audible not sponsored, (laughs) and Glenn Berger narrates it. So it's really interesting hearing it from his point of view. So definitely, if you thought this was interesting, check out that book. It has a lot more details. Super fun, super awesome. Thank you for riding along with us. Please watch your step as you exit, and remember to take all personal belongings with you. Will is awesome. We we all went to school. Well, not we all. I went to school with Will. Rob was his teacher. So we, we love Will. 